My name is Styles. It's good to be with you. I'm here to give you a break. <laughs> if you've been with us any length of time, you know that your neck takes a hit when Moises is up here. It's like watching a tennis match. You're thinking, when is he going to stop? When is he going to pause just for a moment? As opposed to when I'm up here, it's like watching a chess match. And you're like, when is this guy ever going to take a breath? <laughs> We're in the 1 John chapter 4 this morning. 1 John chapter 4, starting in the first verse. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. John here is responding to and trying to get ahead of the myriad, covert, and devious heresies that were flooding the young church. But why did John choose this as the litmus test, a confession that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh as the distinguishing factor between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error? This has always seemed an odd and less determinate method by which we can judge the spirit behind the prophet or the pastor or the preacher. Why not require the confession that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead, knowing that this was the primary concern of the religious elites behind the crucifixion? In Matthew 27, starting in verse 62, we read that after Jesus was crucified and buried, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, speaking of Jesus, said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And this, the last fraud will be worse than the first. So why is this the easier confession that seemed of less consequence? Did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? It was obvious at this time of John's writing that Jesus walked the earth in flesh and blood. This letter from John would have been written no more than 60 to 65 years after Jesus' last day on earth. It was undeniable because there were still scores of people alive and well that had dispersed throughout the known world that had interacted, seen, and heard Jesus. To deny that he walked the earth in flesh and blood was tantamount to denying that the sky is blue or the grass is green. So I ask again, why make this the litmus test? I have a news flash for us. John was more intelligent than this test initially appears. For proper context of this confession challenge, let's turn back to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we'll start in verse 18, go through verse 26. John writes, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, capital A, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, 
they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Verse 22, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. John appears to be pretty agitated, or at the very least concerned in this portion of the letter. So what was happening in the mid to late first century that compelled John to raise such strong alarms and warnings about the heresies and false prophets and antichrists? What happened between the, the day Jesus ascended from earth to heaven and the time John wrote this letter in the late to first century that caused so much consternation? Where was John when he wrote this? Who was he writing to? What were the threats that he was writing about? And more importantly, why is this guy not talking about Christmas? I see your thoughts. I hear your whispers. And I also see this thread that is hanging from my... Oh, my wife is back. Do you see it, honey? Do you see it? Don't interrupt me during the rest of the message if, if, if it reappears somehow. Okay. Well, I got good news for you this morning. I got one thing to say to you. Merry Christmas. We have officially entered the most wonderful time of the year, that time of buying gifts that we can't afford and receiving gifts that we, won't, we don't need, surrounded by people that we f forgot we didn't like. I'm just kidding, Mom. I know that was mean. That was mean. Easy. We are in the Christmas season, and I, I don't know about you, but me and my family are well on our way through the Great American Family Christmas movie list. In fact, the, uh, uh, the five-minute countdown, I felt like I was watching the intro to one of those Hallmarker or Great American Family movies. The first official celebrations of Christ's birth date back to the fourth century. But its namesake, Christmas, taken from a conjoined word of Christ and mass or service, didn't come until closer to the 12th century. The object of Christmas is Christ, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. We will obviously be talk talking about the events that surrounded Christ's birth all month, but today I want us to actually define who Jesus is, since that is the crux of our faith. Was he a man? Was he God? Was he a God? Was he some kind of hybrid, half man, half God? To identify the essence of this child born over 2,000 years ago is to respond directly to John's challenge or testing of the spirits. Because John was not looking for an admission of the obvious that a man named Jesus walked the earth in flesh and blood. 
He was looking for a confession that the one and only God of heaven and earth, creator of everything that was and is and ever will be, descended from glory and lived among us in the person of Jesus. As I said before, John wrote this letter near the end of the first century. And we can observe from the portions we already read that he was writing with a sense of urgency to combat the heresies that were presently invading the church. The collective enemies of our precious faith and the satanic forces behind them had already lost the battle of concealing the resurrection. So now they moved on beyond that to plan B and attempted to poison the well by changing the very essence and identity of Jesus. So how did they do that? From the writings of some of our early church fathers, we can derive two false teachings that were circulating and prominent at this time. The first was called docetism. And docetism rejected the humanity of Jesus. If there were someone in our number today uh, that held this belief, they would affirm nearly everything you and I believe as a Christian, giving no indication of their dissidence. Unless you gave them John's test to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The docetists cannot make that confession because they do not believe it. Rather, they taught that Jesus only appeared to be human. But it was actually a disguise, a masquerade, much like the Christophanies of the Old Testament, like the fourth man in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. The other heresy came from an early form of Gnosticism. Gnostics believed that salvation was not from grace, or at least grace only, but rather something called gnosis, or secret knowledge. In John's day, the Gnostics didn't reject Jesus' humanity, but they did deny his full divinity and dismissed the, the virgin birth. They taught that at his baptism, the spirit of Christ descended from heaven upon the man, Jesus, and inhabited him, possessed him. But then before his suffering, that same spirit left him. This belief aligned with their firm conviction, the Gnostics that is, that all matter was inherently evil. Therefore, it was impossible for Jesus in a body of matter, of flesh, to avoid the stain of evil. Likewise, if they were forced to respond to John's test, they would deny that Jesus came in the flesh, believing rather that he, Christ, inhabited the body of Jesus temporarily. And just to make a, a clarifying statement here, so that we're all on the same page, Jesus Christ, Christ is not a last name. It's okay, I used to think this, the same for years. Gnosticism endures to this day because although the false teachers and the Antichrist, lowercase a, went the way of all the earth, their father of lies still endures and slithers his way into the mental crevices of a vulnerable humanity. But find any religious or pseudo-religious group that, that claims possession of secret knowledge or privileged knowledge, and there you will find Gnosticism alive and well. Mormonism, Freemasonry, Jehovah's Witness, Scientology, to name a few, all are built like multi-level marketing firms where the higher you ascend, the more secrets or gnosis you gain. These entities hide their true beliefs behind a veil of shadowy soliloquies. 
The threat of being led astray by these false teachings was so prevalent in the early church and sadly still is today. But while we can sympathize with our first century brothers and sisters in the faith, it seems unfair for us to ask them to do the same for us. Let me explain. At the time of John's writing, it seems like many of the churches were holding on with white knuckles just to survive. One only needs to read the letters in Revelation that John wrote to understand their plight. They were bombarded on every side with paganism and idolatry. Their beliefs were aggressively legislated against by governing and religious bodies. There's a reason Paul wrote what he did in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. This was the struggle of the early church. And on top of all that, they didn't have at that time one of the most precious things in our possession today, a completed Bible, including the New Testament. The early church, think about it, was entirely dependent on itinerant preachers and the circulation of apostolic letters, letters which today are between the bindings of our Bibles. But back then, we can only imagine that the enemy took advantage of this this method of communication to spread his lies. Their primary method of defense then was to hold fast to the words of Jesus and his apostles and to heed their warnings. Jesus said in Mark 13, he said, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And then if anyone says to you, look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. And then John, in 1 John chapter 2, delivers a similar message, imploring the people to let what they have heard from the beginning, because God's word does not change, abide in them, writing that if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So now what is our burden? What is our responsibility? Obviously, we ourselves must be able to pass John's test. But let us first accurately parse that test. 1 John 4, 3, which we began with, says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But we have to read that within the context of 1 John 2.22, when he writes, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? You see the additional words, is the, between Jesus and Christ? Considered together then, we begin to understand John's full meaning. A more accurate understanding or reading of John's test then is probably this. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus as the Christ or Jesus, comma, the Christ, has come in the flesh, is from God. This confession then affirms in the same breath the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. So what is our burden? That for the rest of our God-given purposeful lives on this earth, we are prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason of the hope that is in us. So that if and when someone asks us, especially in this season, what child is this? We must have the understanding in our minds and the ability to articulate with our mouths what we believe in our hearts, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. 
So let's take the remainder of our time this morning then and investigate what the Bible actually says about the identity of this Messiah or Christ in its Greek form. So who is the Christ? The entire Bible is God's revelation or unveiling of himself to his crown of creation, mankind. The Bible exists primarily for us to learn about God. As an added value, the the more we learn about our maker, the more we learn about ourselves. But that's not its primary purpose. In theology, there is a concept known as progressive revelation, meaning the Bible... In the Bible, God begins with a simple introduction. In the beginning, God. Then progressively reveals more and more of himself to us as the narrative of Scripture unfolds. The same is true in the unveiling of this Messiah, Christ figure. The Hebrew term for Messiah is Mashiach and is found 39 times in the Old Testament. Anointed or anointed one is its technical definition. And in most instances where it's used, it refers generically to kings, prophets, or priests, which something to point out here, Jesus is all three, king, prophet, priest. But there are nine references that strongly envisage a specific individual, a specific anointed one who would arrive sometime in the future. This anointed one, though not called by name, was alluded to from the very beginning. In fact, the very corner of the curtain is pulled back in Genesis chapter 3 in a revelation known as the Proto-Evangelium in the Greek, or first gospel. In Genesis 3.15, we find God speaking to the serpent, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The word translated here as offspring in the English standard, Standard Version is often written as seed, in other translations, and is collective, singular, in its literary form. Meaning this seed of the woman includes the one, singular, who represents the whole group and the whole group itself. So to put it another way, God is saying there will be enmity between your seed, Satan and the forces of evil, and the woman's seed, all humanity. But remarkably, the last part of this verse, in the final statement of God's curse to the serpent, he drops the collective and focuses singularly on the one, an unnamed individual who will bruise and crush and overwhelm the serpent. The Proto-Evangelium, therefore, represents God's redemptive plan for humanity in miniature form. The remainder of God's revelation then answers two questions, two primary questions, who and how? Who is this seed of the woman and how does he crush the enemy? The next time we hear an allusion to this messianic figure, strangely enough, is within another curse. Shortly after the flood, we read about an embarrassing incident of Noah getting drunk uh, on his own wine and passing out in his tent. Then Ham, his son, uncovered his nakedness which at best meant that he humiliated his father, and at worst, he sexually abused him. As a result, Noah levied a curse on Ham's house, and specifically over his son Canaan. He said, "'Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers.'" But he didn't stop there. He shifted from cursing to blessing. In the same way that God did in Genesis 3, he concealed a blessing within a curse. Turning to his other sons, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. 
May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Follow this. When Noah says, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, this subject of that pronoun, him, is unmistakably linked to the principal subject of the previous clause, which is God. So in these first two allusions of the Messiah, we've learned that he will come from the seed of the woman and that he is in fact God who will one day dwell among his people. Next, we fast forward to the end of Genesis when Jacob, now near his death, gathers all of his sons together and prophesied over each one. But it was his prophecy over Judah, his fourth-born son, that stood out among his brothers. Jacob said, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So we learn a few things about the Messiah from this prophecy. We learn that one, his brothers, meaning all Israel, shall praise him and bow down to him. Two, he will subdue his enemies. And three, we learn that he will rule over his brothers. But verse 10 in particular pulls back that curtain even further. After Jacob mentions that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, he then makes the prophetic leap to the coming Messiah when he says, until he comes, he being the Messiah, to whom it belongs. And what is it that belongs to him but dominion and power and authority over all? Now we skip forward a few hundred more years to an incident involving the pagan prophet Balaam when Israel was wandering the wilderness. Balaam was uh, contracted by the Moabite king Balak to pronounce a curse over Israel as they camped uh, at his borders. Balaam warned Balak that he could only speak what God put on his lips, but Balak was desperate and pleaded with him to come and do something. Thus, Balaam utterly or ultimately uttered four oracles over Israel, all of them blessings, not curses. But it's within the fourth and final prophecy, which was unsolicited by Balak, that finds Balaam peering far into the future and seeing this Messiah. He began by saying, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel." Moses then in Deuteronomy 18 prophesied also about this one that Balaam could see, but not now, behold, but not near. Moses speaking to all Israel said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. 
The phrasing in this prophecy that would have certainly raised the eyebrows of his listeners was when Moses said that this prophet would be like him. Let's unpack that and identify how Moses was different and distinct among the other prophets in the Old Testament. First, Moses had an unusually intimate relationship with God, speaking to him as a man speaks to a friend face to face. No other prophet had that relationship. Second, Moses spoke with the authority of God. Speaking of Moses' relationship with his brother Aaron, God said this in Exodus 4. He said, Moses, he, Aaron, shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Third, Moses was a lawgiver. Next, he was a mediator between Israel and God, And lastly, he was a deliverer, liberating Israel from her bondage. Does this sound familiar? Do we know anyone who has that kind of intimate relationship with a father who is described as one having authority, one who gave new laws, who would have had the audacity to say a new commandment I give to you? One who is described as being the only true mediator between God and man? Is this the same prophet that said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Church, before we can even make it out of the first five books of the Old Testament, we've already learned that this Messiah is from the seed of the woman, clearly a reference to his humanity, that he will be a culminating ruler from the tribe of Judah, that he would be like Moses, and as strange as it sounds, going back to Noah's prophecy, that he would in fact be God living among his people. Fortunately, Isaiah, known as the gospel of the Old Testament for his emphasis on this messianic figure, brings clarity to this mystery. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This prophecy was given 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And when recording the events that took place, Matthew in his gospel repeats this prophecy as being fulfilled and also adds the definition of Emmanuel to make his assertion plain to all, God with us. And if that wasn't clear enough, the Holy Spirit moved Isaiah to once again emphasize the divinity of the Messiah. He wrote in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The birth of Jesus, the Christ, is the miracle of God taking on flesh and living among his creation. To be clear for us today, church, God was not transformed into flesh. Transformation involves one thing ceasing to exist and becoming something else. When Jesus was born to Mary, he did not cease being God, but rather he took on the mantle of humanity. One person two natures, fully God, fully man. Hebrews chapter two says that Jesus became like us, man, in every respect, 
so that he might become, become a merciful and faithful high priest. And in Colossians, we read that in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells. The baby born in a manger to the Virgin Mary was a specific event bound by space and time when God became flesh in the person of Jesus. But this was not the beginning of Jesus as he has no beginning nor end. He is the everlasting God. Jesus himself made this claim numerous times when he walked the earth. One day Jesus was in the temple reasoning with the religious leaders about his claim of being the son of God. They accused him of being possessed by a demon, making these outlandish claims. He countered that they were of their father, the devil, who is a liar and the father of lies because they do not accept the truth of his claim of being the son of God. He went on to say that anyone who believes in him and keeps his word will never taste death. At this statement, they, were, they said, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. They were incensed saying, you are not yet 50 years old. And yet you say, you've seen Abraham Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. At this statement, the people picked up stones to throw at him because Jesus, at this moment, had claimed equality with God by using the same name that he introduced himself to Moses. I am. To state it plainly now, returning to John's impassioned and urgent plea for the church to test every spirit, only heeding those who confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. What does that ultimately mean? That confession. It is a confession that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. But not only that, it's also a confession that Jesus has always existed, that he has always existed as God, and that he has always existed as a distinct person of the triune God the Trinity. This is the Jesus that we confess, church. This is the Jesus and the gospel the disciples preached. Paul's warning to the Galatians is fitting here. He said, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. The message of the gospel and the object of the gospel cannot be separated and can never be changed. To change the message or the object of the message, which is Jesus, is to nullify the gospel message itself, which is to say, if you do not confess and believe in the Jesus of the Bible and the message the disciples preached, then you reject his gift of salvation by grace and grace alone. For there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This Jesus, this was the child born to Mary, wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. This was the God who stepped down from heaven in the moment of our deepest despair and offered hope to us, to all of us, 
As Isaiah wrote, a people living in darkness, that's us. We have seen a great light. We were living in a land of the shadow of death, but a light has dawned. Bow your heads, church. Jesus, we confess as a body that you are the Christ, the Messiah, come in the flesh. You are the everlasting God who came in the flesh to save your people. You are the great I am, liberator of the captive, redeemer of our souls. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.